Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. It's a chilly day today, and I'm glad that you've snuggled up with us today to uh, talk to my guest, Eric Barron. He's the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland and makes him the Chief Federal Law Enforcement Officer in our state. We're going to talk to Mr. Barron in just a bit, but first, a bit of a recap on the big news of yesterday, the January 6th committee held uh, what is likely to be its final public hearing uh, and announced a a stunning list of four areas in which they are referring to the Justice Department uh, a criminal uh, ideas for a criminal prosecution of a former president. This has never happened in the history of our country. Uh, It's a stunning development. Uh, It is something that, of course, was expected Uh, But just because we expected it doesn't make it any less stunning. The areas that the committee uh, is referring to the Department of Justice for criminal charges to be brought include obstructing an official proceeding. That's, of course, the proceeding that was uh, intended to certify the votes in the Electoral College, defrauding the United States, making false statements, and assisting or aiding an insurrection. So a four-count summary of the actions taken by the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Uh, The committee heard from more than a thousand witnesses. They compiled uh, about a million pages of documents. They released yesterday in advance of a full report a summary of their report of about 160 pages. The full report we expect to be released tomorrow. Uh, Of course, the referrals are not binding. Uh, The Department of Justice can decide not to pursue uh, what the January 6th committee would like them to pursue. Uh, That is a decision that rests with the uh, special master who's been appointed in this case, Jack Smith, uh, and to a certain extent, Merrick Garland. So we are going to talk more about this on Thursday with Kim Whaley, a wonderful legal scholar who comes by and uh, talks to us uh, from time to time. So we will have more on that. But as I mentioned, my guest today is Eric Barron, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. He supervises a staff of about 100 attorneys who investigate and prosecute national security threats, terrorism, narcotics trafficking, organized crime, gang violence, public corruption, cybercrime, financial and healthcare fraud, and civil rights violations. So it's a large, large portfolio. Prior to his appointment as U.S. Attorney by President Biden last year, he served in the Maryland House of Delegates for six years. And before that, he was a prosecutor in Prince George's County and in Baltimore City with a focus on violent crime. Mr. Barron is the first African-American to hold the post of Maryland U.S. Attorney and the first Democrat to be nominated for the position in the last 20 years. By this time next month, several important offices at the state and local level will be held by newly elected Democratic officials. Anthony Brown will become the Maryland Attorney General, Wes Moore will become Governor, and Ivan Bates will be sworn in as Baltimore's state's attorney. Coordination with these and other officials is key to addressing the scourge of violence that has plagued cities like Baltimore for years, and I'm uh, delighted that U.S. Attorney Eric Barron joins me here in Studio A. Mr. Barron, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. So what's your understanding of the reason behind the fact 
that cities across the country, not just Baltimore, but literally across the country, have experienced a rise in violence in these last few years. How, how do you and your prosecutors explain that? I don't think we can fully explain it. There's a, a lot of different factors involved in the rise in, in violent crime throughout, throughout the country and in, in Maryland and Baltimore City. Um, but, you know, I do think we can, uh, uh, with, you know, the right partnerships and, and teamwork, so to speak, uh, start to get our arms around mitigating the violence. Um, but it's a lot of factors, socioeconomic and, and other things, uh, including the pandemic. Um, but I am optimistic that working together, we're going to start to get our arms around the problem. And I do want to talk about uh, the nature of those partnerships and what they entail. Of course, the other thing that goes hand in hand with the rise in violence is also the the relatively low clearance rate for an awful lot of these crimes. I mean, in the city of Baltimore, it hovers around 40 percent. Um, there are other cities where it's, you know, as high as 60 or 70 percent. But um, even, you know, even if it's 60 percent, four out of 10 people are literally getting away with murder if they're never identified and charged with the crimes. Um, in terms of what you can do from the federal perspective, uh, and again, gun homicides are not specifically in your in your portfolio, but um, you talk about partnerships, you talk about working with state and, and local authorities. Um, what's your take on why the clearance rates, not just in Baltimore, but in many other places, have, have remained so stubbornly low? Well, I think we've seen a, a, a change over the decades in who is involved in, in violent crime, and it's it's so dispersed and fractured. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think folks tend to think that there's a small number of people in a small area doing all of the violence. And what we're seeing is, um, you know, it's, it's more broad-based than, than folks realize or, or initially understand. And it's fractured and there's, there's a, a number of different groups involved in different kinds of activity that promote violence. And so, um, you know, with, with uh, law enforcement offices under budget and, you know, uh, strains, strained communities socioeconomically, um, it's, it's difficult to solve violent crime swiftly. Um, but we're, we're working to change that. I'm trying to uh, really transform our partnerships into teamwork and that means you know where where one agency may be uh, faltering or need help then it's it's up to us to to do our best to supplement and 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 pick up you know where where they leave off or enhance their ability to solve crimes and in particular in Baltimore City that's what we're trying to do um, you know, in-house with the U.S. Attorney's Office. We're the only office now with a an in-house intelligence unit. Um, this is a unit of former uh, detectives from, you know, other agencies that we've put together to help de-conflict uh, investigations, help connect the dots, and essentially act as a intelligence hub uh, to support our local 
and state uh, law enforcement agencies and help them solve crimes. If you've just joined us, it's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is the U.S. Attorney for the Maryland District, Eric Barron. He'll be with us for the hour here. We'll take calls and comments a little bit later in the broadcast. And Mr. Barron, um, you made a, a pronouncement to your staff uh, about a month ago that every single person in the office is going to, including you, sure. is going to take a gun case. Right. Um, that is indicative of how many gun cases you all uh, are are asked to uh, to prosecute. Talk about what kinds of gun cases those are and how they differ perhaps from the ones that, you know, the state's attorney here in Baltimore City would take uh, and why you you decided to assign folks that, even if they don't have any particular experience in gun right. cases, you're going to train them up, uh, but you want all hands on deck here. Right. No, absolutely. It's all hands on deck. And largely we're talking about uh, felon in possession of firearms uh, cases. And uh, and more recently, we're looking at the school zone statute, federal school zone statute, in which you don't have to be a felon to be prosecuted federally uh, if, you ha- if you have an illegal gun uh, uh, in or around uh, uh, a school then you can be prosecuted federally. So mostly we're talking about those two statutes, but we are also involved in, you know, uh, violent crimes that uh, that have an uh, an uh, uh, interstate uh, connection. Um, but that that pronouncement and the work we're doing and work I'm asking every AUSA and our criminal AUSA in our office to do is also just indicative of how seriously we take the problem and that this is a, a, a high priority is the first uh, a priority of my office uh, uh, to, you know, uh, fight violent crime throughout Maryland and in particular in Baltimore City. And so we want to be an example, a model uh, for the rest of our partners and to show that, you know, we're, we're taking it as seriously as can be and we're going to lead. There is such a preponderance of guns uh, who are, you know, which are out there. Uh, there's, you know, more guns in the country than human beings uh, in in the United States. Talk about your initiative uh, called the Feeder Root Task Force. Um, this is another one of these initiatives that's trying to bring together uh, various aspects of law enforcement and others to to attack that problem. Sure. This is. So this is uh, really in 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 my role, picking up the phone and and asking our partners to, to for help, particularly in the Baltimore region. Uh, picked up the phone and spoke with the uh, Maryland State Police and the governor's office and said, you know what, what can we do that we're not already doing uh, uh, on a on a limited basis, understanding that resources resources are limited, but also understanding that there's a serious problem of gun trafficking, gun violence, drug trafficking in and around the Baltimore region. And so in response to that, the governor and the state police came up with this feeder route initiative, with this, which is essentially uh, strategically placing uh, state police around routes in and out of uh, the Baltimore region, uh, where we know drugs and or illegal firearms are being funneled in and out, uh, and using the police expertise to identify potential traffickers and potential you know, uh, uh, perpetrators of violent crime in and around the region. Does that mean you've got to be profiling? It does not mean we have to be profiling. Absolutely not. 
Um, but, you know, we we want our police to be in a position to respond, to react. And, you know, we we have intelligence uh, beyond uh, and not including profiling um, that tells us, you know, where the drugs may be coming from and who might be uh, involved. And, you know, police are only stopping those who uh, ha- they have probable cause to believe are involved in crime or who are, um, you know, uh, not following the traffic laws. It's been up and running for a little bit, not not all that long, but a little bit. What's the initial uh, efficacy? How how are you how are you feeling about uh, this particular strategy? Well, it's it's one piece of a broader strategy. I haven't had a readout yet from the state police or the governor's office, but um, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful that not only that um, we're hopefully catching those who are involved in illegal activity, but hopefully uh, preventing and deterring uh, uh, people who who might have thought, you know, they might want to. Uh, Hopefully with with some of these announcements, it gives people pause and uh, they'll think twice before they do something. When it comes to prevention, you also have another initiative called Knock Knock and Talk. Right. Um, This involves uh, visits to uh, people who are on parole unannounced. You show up. Um, it's not just law enforcement. It's a law enforcement person uh, as well as a, a social worker, a person, you know, a non-law enforcement person. Um, how's that? How does that work? Um, people get nervous about, you know, when they hear when they hear right. about, you know, showing up to people's houses um, unannounced. I mean, we have here in Baltimore the Gun Trace Task Force that used to do that sort of thing all the time. And, right. uh, you know, we, we all know how that how that worked out. So people hear about these initiatives and think, well, right. even if it's an effective law enforcement strategy, it has been so abused in the past. Um, so talk about this particular initiative, how it's working, what the parameters are. Sure. This is a another initiative that's, you know, not... A, not uh, directly involves my office, but I'm picking up the phone and and talking to our partners and saying, what you know, what more can we do? And is there, a, you know, some limited, narrowly tailored uh, strategy that you're not already doing that you know might help us uh, identify uh, and and people who may be at risk of violence or at risk of you know doing violence. And so, talking with uh, uh, Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services Secretary Rob Green, I said, well, you know, can we identify those people who are at risk? And that, again, that is at risk of either being a victim of violence or being a perpetrator. And we came up with a a narrow list of repeat violent offenders who happen to be on supervised release or probation. And when you're in that status, you agree to report, you agree to a whole host of of conditions. You know, getting a job, getting your education, staying out of trouble. You you agree to have visits unannounced, as they may be. And so, um, there's nothing, no no real sea change in terms of uh, what what the expectation of of these particular individuals are. So we identified. Uh, you know, a, a list of those individuals, and Secretary Green put together eight teams, including you know parole or probation agents and social workers, and 
yes, they're showing up uh, at different times of the day and knocking on these doors to see how, first of all, how they can help how they can help and that's what the it's not a uh you know uh uh, uh, um, a menacing uh knock on the door it's really hey checking in what's going on how's the job search going how's school going you know is there anything we can help you with now of course if you know the agents see something that you know they they that shouldn't be happening then we are in a position to respond. And, uh, you know, a, a violation of parole or probation is something that will that could uh, lead you to be in court, um, but not necessarily. Um, but, you know, the hope is, is that we can get people, first of all, we can get people help. And second of all, again, maybe folks will think twice if they were thinking about getting involved in something illegal. Can you give me an example of the kind of help we hear all the time about the need for wraparound services? Uh, right. We hear, you know, that, that so many folks are struggling with housing insecurity, with food insecurity. They don't have a job. They don't uh, have the credentials for a job. They Sometimes they don't even have IDs. I mean, just basic stuff that they're going to need right. to function in society. Um, who, who provides that help then? Is, are, are these folks then referred to the jurisdiction that they're in? Is, is this a, a state response? Is it a federal responsibility who picks up the, the slack? So uh, these agents and social workers are armed with, you know, lists of uh, resources from different local and state agencies. Uh, some of the, it, sometimes they're referred to, they might be referred to a reentry fair hosted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, but, you know, whether it be mental health or job assistance some sometimes people need help writing a resume or sometimes they you know they think they're ineligible but they're actually not so we we do our best to really sit down with people and say well you know what 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 would you like to do what's available here's a list here you know you know and 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 this is a category of folks that need extra help so sometimes you know we hold their hands and uh, uh, lead them to the opportunity or help them, you know, apply for that, that, um, that grant or, you know, the, the you know, uh, food stamps or whatever the case may be. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about those kinds of interventions. I know uh, violence interruption has been something that you've had a keen interest in long before you became U.S. Attorney. So we will talk about that on the other side of a quick break with U.S. Attorney Eric Barron, who's with me here in Studio A. You can join our conversation as well, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 881 WIPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, my guest will be LaFontaine Oliver, the president and CEO of Your Public Radio, who will soon leave to take the reins of New York Public Radio. 
and his tenure here in Baltimore has been eventful, to say the least. WYPR's partnerships with WTMD and the Baltimore Banner are a product of LaFontaine's vision. Our conversation on Midday Tomorrow will serve as, you know, kind of an exit interview. LaFontaine will reflect on his time here and offer listeners his take on what we can expect moving forward. So I hope you'll join me and LaFontaine Oliver tomorrow on Midday. If you've just joined us today, my guest is the U.S. Attorney for the Maryland District, Eric Barron. To join our conversation, we're at 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. So let's talk about the violence interrupters, uh, people uh, like the Safe Streets program here in Baltimore. People are familiar with ROCA as well. Right. Uh, Brandon Scott, the mayor of Baltimore, his overall approach, he refers to it as the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, GVRS. Um, and and the, the violence interrupters play a fundamental role in that strategy. What is the federal involvement uh, in that kind of strategy and uh, the federal u- utilization of violence interrupters like uh, the folks who work with Roca and Safe Streets. Sure. So w- we are not directly involved in violence interruption. Uh, we are, uh, you know, of course, partners with the city and the mayor's office, and we uh, are supportive of, you know. Uh, prevention and 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 you know th- those types of strategies i mean th- the bottom line is if if we take one angle or one approach uh to violence in our communities then we're just going to be spinning our wheels um there has to be prevention enforcement you know it it has to be a comprehensive approach and and the the, the that that's what the mayor is is trying to do uh, insert a, a robust uh, prevention uh, and interruption model uh, to uh, supplement and and to work with the the accountability um, approach that the police department and you know the uh, state prosecutor's office and and my office you know bring to bear. Um, I am uh, absolutely a supporter of violence interruption programs, you know, particularly hospital-based violence interruption. Um, I think, uh, you know, Maryland and the city, we have, uh, we we should play to our strengths. And one of our strengths is a world-class hospital system. And they have, you know, very robust evidence-based violence intervention uh, programs. Uh, And, you know, we really should do our our very best to uh, support such programs. I think they work with and in conjunction with accountability and law enforcement. Uh, right after you were appointed as U.S. Attorney, I think you told the Washington Post, you said our violent crime enforcement efforts have to be harmonized with our violence intervention and prevention efforts. And at that time, you said, we don't do a great job of that. Right. Um, it's been a little bit more than a year that you've been uh, at the post, um, do you think we're getting better? Uh, when I think of, you know, for example, just those two groups that I mentioned, Safe Streets and Roca, there seems to be some friction between those two groups and some and some uh, lack of clarity about what their roles are going to be. Roca, uh, the contract that the city had with Roca has not yet been renewed. Um, I think maybe they're talking about it, um, but uh, it doesn't seem as harmonious as it could be. 
Well, and I can't speak to uh, any specific conflict, but you know, to the extent we're not talking about working together, teamwork, harmony, uh, then you know we're you know that 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 that's not uh, in conjunction with what's going to you know get us to where we want to be. So. Um, just like any team, uh, football team, you know, if there's, you know, if there's folks, uh, you know, uh, conflicting on the sidelines, that's going to affect the play on the field. So we all got to be on the same page. Uh, we got to work together. Uh, and, you know, where, where one needs help, then it's up to, uh, you know, your fellow teammates, your fellow uh, agencies uh, at the different levels of law enforcement to step in. And, and help. So, um, you know, I would just encourage any uh, agency or, or groups who cares about violence in, in, in our cities uh, to, to, you know, get in the room and hammer out the, dis- the uh, dispute. In uh, August of this year, about four months ago, uh, the, uh, your office had, had an announcement about uh, a new infusion of funds to help fight violent crime. 14 additional special U.S. attorneys, 10 additional investigators, five data analysts, four legal support uh, personnel. This all was supported by Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch. The uh, legislature um, okayed $3.5 million for this. Um, You talked about limited resources. Um, And then just, you know, three months later, um, you were saying that, you know, we've got an overburden uh, violent crime unit, uh, and we need greater urgency among law enforcement officials. Those those seem to be out of sync with each other. Um, there was great excitement at the end of the summer about the new new sources of funding, not just from the feds, but from the state as well. Um, but then it seems that the, these offices are still uh, still scrambling to to get the basic work done. What, what do you think? Well, I, I I think with that announcement in in August, you see uh, um, an example of really uh, an enhancement of what was already a strong partnership between the, the state and the feds. Um, we had a m- multiple times increase in funding from the state to my office to hire additional staff and prosecutors which uh, are pretty much have uh, come online now. Um, so that that's online. It is working. We are uh, being able to accept more cases, uh, uh, have more investigations. That intelligence unit that I spoke of earlier uh, has been beefed up and is, is now in a position to assist the Baltimore City Police in solving more ho- homicides, more homicides quicker. Um, but that's not the end of it. Um, that's not going to be the panacea. Uh, it, you know, uh, we have, um, you know, a new, uh, state's attorney, uh, uh, coming in next year. Um, that office, uh, n- needs help. Um, and, you know, I would, you know, I hope, uh, that, you know, all of our, Law enforcement agencies are doing their very best to make sure that that new administration transitions in successfully. But, you know, there's not going to be one pronouncement at any one given time that's going to be, you know, a talisman for getting this job done. It's going to be an ongoing, uh, you know, day by day um, 
hard work by public, many public servants at every different level. Eric Barron is the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall, 410-662-8780. If you have a question for the U.S. Attorney, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. You can follow me at Tom Hall, wypr. And Mr. Barron, you bring up um, what is kind of the the elephant in the room when it comes to the state's attorney's office here in Baltimore, because the current state's attorney who leaves office on the 3rd of January, uh, Marilyn Mosby, of course, is under indictment, uh, federal indictment from your office. She has even accused you personally of bias against her. Um, when I've asked her, you know, uh, given that situation, uh, how can we expect that there would be good cooperation between the U.S. Attorney's Office and the state's attorney's office? And she said, oh, you know, it doesn't affect it. Everything's fine. But it's difficult to believe that everything is fine. I mean, that's obviously, you know, a, a cloud hovering over the whole situation. Um, will things be, you know, considerably different? when Ivan Bates is sworn in on January 3rd. I mean, it's a new person, but of course, the, the at that point, the former state's attorney is still going to be <laughs> under indictment. Her trial doesn't begin, isn't scheduled to begin until March. Um, but will will there be a different tenor? Will there be a, a is this um, a moment for a reset? So I know it, it it may be hard to believe, but when you look at these agencies, so in my office, yes, uh, a little over 100 attorneys, um, somewhere close to 100 administrative per, uh, professionals. Um, I forget the numbers in the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office, but uh, at every level in our offices, th- th- we have hardworking public servants uh, who, you know, they're, they're not paying attention to party affiliation or anything else, and they're working really hard with one another every day, all day. And that's something that will not, co- will not stop, will continue, uh, whether it's me or any other personality uh, uh, who happens to be a U.S. attorney or state's attorney. Um, obviously, we have, uh, we have different people uh, who are, are, you know, changing those offices at any given time. And, you know, I, I am expressing the need to make sure that uh, we, you know, wrap our arms around, you know, uh, one another, so to speak, as, as these transitions happen, so that the hardworking public servants on the line, on the ground, can continue to do the good work that they do. And that's what uh, I expect to continue. That's what I'm working hard with, uh, 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 you know, the, the front offices or incoming front offices with the state's attorney's office. Give me an example of how your office as the U.S. attorney can assist in the prosecution uh, and investigation of homicides in the city of Baltimore. So, for example, uh, you know, with our uh, in- in-house intelligence unit, um, there are investigations going on all the time. Uh, various uh, different kinds of investigations throughout the city and a homicide happens and you know immediately you know uh, uh, a city detective is you know on the scene and trying to connect the dots who what when where and how Uh, our intelligence unit is 
helping with um, that, you know, that homicide detective or, you know, that uh, local police department and saying, okay, is there anything we can tell you about the victim? Is there any chatter about going on in, in this community about what just happened? Is there any information that, you know, we can uh, provide or connect the dots that uh, might assist the department in solving that crime? Um, and it may be a piece of a, 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 a larger um uh, drug investigation or uh, beef between gangs um, there's you know any number of, of situations that may have led to that homicide and our office is immediately and actively involved with assisting uh, however um, necessary or needed or when asked uh, in solving that you know the, a, any given particular homicide earlier in the program we talked about um, trying to be predictive and preventive about homicides, identifying those folks who are uh, potentially at risk of either being victims or perpetrators of homicides. Um, and it involved uh, this knock and talk uh, strategy. Uh, you mentioned parole uh, and probation folks go out with social workers. Um, Governor-elect Moore uh, ran uh, it, it, big big fundament of his uh, crime fighting proposal was to beef up parole and probation here in the state of Maryland. He said it's uh, underfunded, understaffed. I guess there's about 250 parole and probation officers that cover the city. He says that's not enough. The state needs to do a better job uh, providing more uh, folks in that position. Is that your assessment as well? I mean, in your experience, uh, is has parole and probation, uh, you know, done a good enough job uh, staying on top of uh, of those folks who have been released from incarceration? I th I think the the men and women who uh, work at parole and probation are doing the very best with what they have, and I'm absolutely certain they could probably use greater resources. So. Uh, I'm sure if uh, the governor-elect can make that happen, it will be well received by not just by that agency and its and its public servants, but um, by its partners, including myself. Eric Barron is the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. We're going to have more with Mr. Barron after a quick break. We'll get to some emails and calls here on midday four one zero six six two eight seven eight zero. Our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And before we go to our break, each week here on Midday, it's our practice to read the names of people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do this to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and their friends in their hour of grief. 322 people have lost their lives to violence in our city this year. Baltimore police have released the identity of a man whose death was first reported the week before last. Gerald Reed was 26 years old. And police have also identified three people who were reported as victims of homicide last week. They are William Brown, Jr., age 21, Albert Stevenson, Jr., age 56, and Tremaine Thomas, Jr. He was 26 years old.
It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Eric Barron, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. He was nominated by President Joe Biden in July of 2021 and confirmed by the Senate on September 30th of that year. As U.S. Attorney, he has oversight over several high-profile cases, including the prosecution of outgoing Baltimore State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby, who will face trial on perjury charges in March. Mr. Barron is with us until the top of the hour. You are welcome to join us, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. And uh, Mr. Barron, we have a a couple of calls about um, repeat offenders. We're going to get to one of them uh, in a second. But I note that yesterday you had an announcement that six people from uh, the Black Gorilla family gang were indicted. Two of them were arrested on Monday. The other had already been in custody. One of them is a man named David Warren. He's 30 years old. Um, He has been charged with attempted murder 10 times, 10 times, and he's never been convicted. Um, When we talk about repeat offenders, now, you know, Mr. Warren went to court, was, was charged, accused, prosecuted, and acquitted. Um, so he is, uh, you know, assumed to be innocent uh, in that in that way. But, right. you know, you and I both know what's really going on here. Um, when it comes to a person like that who's, who's you know, clearly uh, committing crimes more than once, um, it, it just, we hear a lot about getting these repeat violent offenders off the street. But, boy, we, we, we seem to identify an awful lot of, repeat violent offenders who are still on the streets. Right. And, you know, I want to make sure I express that an indictment is merely uh, an accusation. And, uh, you know, the, you know, the prosecutors have to, the government has to prove its case uh, in court and beyond a reasonable doubt. And until that happens, um, someone accused of a crime uh, uh, is, is in fact innocent until proven guilty. Um, repeat violent offenders generally, yes, um, is a big, it's, it's a big problem. It's our focus. Um, we have, uh, limited resources and the best use of those resources, uh, is to identify, you know, repeat violent offenders who, um, who are either who are often at risk of uh, of being victims themselves, um, but also you know obviously at risk of of reoffending and um, whether they're uh, you know out there on the street or uh, you know matriculating back into our communities. I think it's uh, in our best interest to make make sure that uh, we give them every opportunity to be s- successful good citizens. But if not, um, we need to be swift and certain uh, with accountability measures, with uh, investigation and prosecution. Um, we need to work to be successful at it. 
Um, and sometimes that may, you know, mean putting on a good case and, um, and, in, and also building trust with the community and community members who, uh, you know, may end up being members of a jury and, you know, build, uh, you know, credibility with the community and, and, and with all of our partners so that, um, you know, we can put on a good case and make something stick. When you talk about limited resources, we have an email from Margaret who says the way out can't be based on what we can afford. We can't afford to continue as we are. Of course, easier said than done when you don't have a budget, I suppose. But um, she does have a point. Let's go to Elaine. She's on the line from Baltimore City. And I think you want to talk about repeat offenders as well, Elaine. Welcome to Midday with U.S. Attorney Barron. Yes, thank you so much. I was wondering, um, you answered many of my thoughts or questions about that, but I wondered that nexus of the repeat offenders coming out of prison at that one point, and it seems like they are back in the communities, and are there resources through your office to um, establish them in the community successfully at that point, or is it just later on when you do the knock and talks? where it's basically a checkup. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is, does your office have a role in successfully transitioning from a incarcerated environment to back into the community in that area, or is that up to the city or something else? So I'm actively encouraging uh, my office to have a role there. We, we, we can't have a role directly, and we can't directly, uh, we don't directly provide services, but uh, uh, one, the Department of Justice uh, in D.C. has a, a, a funding and grant-making arm, and we do our best to uh, make sure that those who are doing good work out there on behalf of returning citizens are aware of funding sources, and you know, w wherever possible, we recommend and encourage uh, the department to, you know, fund uh, the good works that um, that you know, nonprofits and, uh, and the church community are, are doing in our communities. And then two, while we, again, we don't directly um, provide services, my office is uh, regularly uh, uh, hosting uh, reentry fairs where we, we get those who can uh, provide the direct so services. We get them all into uh, a, a room, uh, usually the war memorial, uh, and and make those services directly available to um, returning citizens. We are also getting in the uh, doing the, that work in the 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 correctional facilities and and trying to do it uh, uh, some period ahead of time before uh, those who are coming out. Because uh, uh, they're going to come out at some point, but uh, making sure that resources are available to them, and and make sure, and trying to make sure that there's uh, a planning process um, uh, underway, so that you know they can be sex successful when they do come out. I'm also um, encouraging uh, and and uh, promoting uh, services to our schools. Um, so we we are in the schools uh, um, with anti-bullying and, and, you know, anti-violence and, um, you know, uh, programs to uh, help young people uh, get the tools to solve problems uh, uh, 
you know, without violence. Um, so, you know, we're in the schools. We are uh, uh, helping and supplementing and encouraging reentry programs. We actually convene a Maryland reentry alliance where we convene, you know, nonprofits uh, uh, throughout the state uh, who are in that space and uh, encouraging them to, you know, work work together uh, and and helping them find the resources to do the good works that they do. Yeah, we have an email from Donna, who, if I'm not mistaken, is Donna Cobb, although the last name is not uh, available to me uh, on this screen. Uh, she's a former um, faculty member of the University of Maryland Law School and involved with a group called Return Home Baltimore. Um, and uh, she uh, mentions the work of the Maryland Statewide Alliance for Returning Citizens. That's it. Yeah, uh, which is what you were just referring to. Um, so there are there are these programs uh, in place. Let's try to get to another call to Eric, who's on the line from Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with U.S. Attorney Eric Barron. Thank you, Tom. Um, you know, I, I have a question, but I, I can't have to observe. A, a thought occurred to me as I was listening to your reading the names, as I've heard you do so many times on the show. And But I never had this question uh, before. You know, is there any city outside the United States in an advanced country in the world where such a thing is necessary on a radio show? Where, 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 there would, where there would even come to be a felt necessity to do something like that. Wow, that's, that's hard to answer. Um, there are plenty of cities around the world that, you know, uh, have the scourge of, of violence uh, that they contend with. But certainly uh, here in America, uh, it is a, a constant presence, uh, whether it's mass shootings, whether it's individual shootings, uh, the folks that I've talked to, uh, experts say that about half uh, of the violence uh, related to guns is related to gangs. The other half is individuals uh, who are involved in retribution for uh, a perceived slight. It could be a, a sort of low-level beef or it could be something more serious. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs, Eric. You're exactly right. Which is what leads to my, you know, my question from Mr. Barron. I mean... <sighs> I mean, given um, given the the current imbecilic reading of the Second Amendment by the United States Supreme Court, on the one hand, and and the basic fact embodied in Tom's citation of the clearance rate um, at the start of the show, I mean. Don't we have the government itself working at cross purposes? I mean, you know, on the one hand, you've got the U.S. Supreme Court saying that there's a that there's a fundamental right to ownership of, of you know just about any firearm, and on the other, you have not much evidence in many uh, urban neighborhoods of functioning government at all. So you've, I mean, the government itself has effectively made it in a way, a, a cheap and easy solution to what Tom was just talking about, to, yeah. you know, well, be Eric, Eric, thank, thanks for the, for the comment. We are uh, running out of time, so let me give Mr. Barron a chance to respond. Well, I, he- I hear the, the pain and exasperation in the caller and, and, and what he's expressing. And, I, you know, I, I got to be careful not to get into policy. I can't get in, you know, into policy, but uh, there is a 
culture of violence in our communities that we really have to contend with. And I think it, uh, it, it's, it seeps into every aspect, uh, video games, movies, media. Um, you know, I, I think it's more per- pervasive than even uh, government policy. All right, well, we will have you back and uh, talk not so much about policy, but again about initiatives that can uh, help address the problem. U.S. Attorney Eric Barron, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, I'm going to talk with the current general manager of WIPR, LaFontaine Oliver. He's about to leave and take over New York Public Radio. We'll get his perspective then. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day. This is 88.1 WIPR.